Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the first chapter of Mark, Mark 1, verses 1 through 13, which you'll find on page 836 of your pew Bible. We've completed a short series in various parables that Jesus taught, and we're going to begin a series now through the Gospel of Mark that will take us into next summer, allowing for our Advent season and Easter. And so we're beginning this morning here, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Read with me. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when He came up out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. I heard the story of a lady who was at the park. She, after a time of sitting on a bench, heard a car come to a screeching halt in the parking lot. And she looked over and there was a young woman there who jumped out of her car. She seemed to be excited. She ran over to a picnic table and seemed to be waiting with great anticipation for someone to arrive. The woman's attention was distracted and she looked away from the lady for a few moments and then remembered to look back over at the picnic table. And here was this woman and yet nobody was there with her. But what she had done is brought her Bible and opened it up and with great anticipation seemed to be reading the Scriptures, longing to be with her Savior. She, who was a Christian herself, began to lament the fact that her desire and zeal and delight and joy in the Lord had seemed to wane so that she no longer was that type of person who would jump out of her car with her Scriptures in her hand and run to a picnic table and sit down and for a time read the Bible just so she could hear the Word of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, it's very easy for the spiritual energy of any particular Christian and need for a congregation to diminish. It's far easier for it to diminish than for it to grow. It only takes a small bit of discouragement 
or a little bit of discord and disunity. And all of a sudden, the spiritual temperature of the church begins to go down. Mark here knows of this reality for himself. He here is a servant of the gospel in Rome. Peter records for us in the first book of or the uh, the first epistle of Peter, chapter five, verse thirteen. He speaks of Paul be, or uh, uh, Mark being with Peter in Rome and calls him my son. Mark, in a sense, has become to Peter what Timothy was to Paul, an apostolic lieutenant an assistant, a servant in the Gospel. And now Mark wants to record for the church in Rome primarily as well as in other parts of the world and indeed for all of Christianity. The things that are true about Jesus and the Gospel of grace to be a great encouragement so that their spiritual zeal would grow. Because after all, what has happened here in Rome, you know the story. Emperor Nero has gotten into conflicts with the aristocracy of the city and in his madness desired to burn the city down. And in doing so, he blamed the Christians and used that as an excuse to persecute them, hanging them on poles and lighting them on fire as torches for the night. So here Mark wants to once again tell the church about the good news that he has learned from the Apostle Peter. And so he begins this Gospel saying, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel or Evangel. It was a word used in the Roman culture to speak of joyful tidings. It was a pronouncement, a proclamation, an announcement of glorious things that have happened and in particular, tied to the, the cult of the emperor. So that when a new, uh, or the son of the emperor, a new emperor was born, it was announced with a gospel, an evangel. When the emperor ascended to the throne, or when he accomplished a great victory in battle, a gospel went forth, an evangel, good news of glad tidings, joyful tidings went forward. There was an inscription found in 9 B.C. for Augustus that said, the birthday of the God was for the world the beginnings of joyful tidings that have been proclaimed on His account. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The beginnings of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's announcement here would have been received in particular by the Roman Christians as an announcement of something new that has begun. A new work of God. A proclamation of the Son of God coming in the flesh to save sinners for Himself. You see here, it's an announcement about the new reign of the Son of God that has been established. It's not the Son of the earthly emperor that has come. But this is the beginnings of joyful tidings of the Son who has come. The Son of the Emperor. The Son of the King of all the cosmos. And that He will reign. And they are to receive it as joyful tidings. Because in Him is salvation for sinners. In Christ, the Son of God, all the blessings of the Kingdom of God, 
the heavenly blessings will rain down on the people of God so that they would know the joy of entering into His kingdom and experiencing eternal life. So what does Mark want to teach us about the beginning of the reign of Christ, this Son of God, that His joyful tidings are good news so that we as God's people here in Hendersonville in 2009 can have our spiritual energies renewed, our spiritual zeal renewed, that we would serve Him faithfully. Well, there are four things here. First of all, there is a proclamation a proclamation that's set forth. What we find here in verses 2 and following is the ministry of John the Baptist. He is a fulfillment of prophecy. Mark writes in verse 2, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist's purpose in ministry is to make preparations for the coming of the Son of God, for the coming of Jesus. So he fulfills this prophecy of preparing the way for the Lord by calling the people out into the wilderness to baptize them. We're told in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, he has the same description as some of the Old Testament prophets. He's clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. It's meant to draw to mind Elijah's ministry in the wilderness. He looks the part of the Old Testament prophet and plays the part by calling the people of God back to covenant faithfulness. That, after all, is the primary role of the prophet in the Old Testament. It's not simply to give new revelation about what God might do in the future or what God will do in the future. But it's actually to call the people to repentance. To once again be the people of God that He delights for them to be. And so John calls the people into the wilderness to be baptized as a ceremonial washing to point forward to the true washing that would take place in Jesus. See, in the Bible, the wilderness was a place where God would purge and purify His people. Think of the Exodus. When they left the land of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea in a sense of a baptism that symbolically purified the people of God and moving on into the wilderness where they were to be constituted as the people of God. God making His covenant with them on Mount Sinai and saying, you are to be a holy people to Me. Throw away your idols from Egypt. Purge yourself of your sin. Consecrate yourself and come to Me. And in a similar way, John calls the people of God, the people of the covenant, out into the wilderness to say, prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. Repent. Repent of your sins and turn from them. The Old Testament word for repent, shuv, just simply means to turn from one way of life, of following after folly and tree, to turn 
the Lord, to serve Him, to be faithful to Him, to obey Him, and to trust Him in all that He has for us. The Children's Catechism, I think, says it well. What is repentance? Repentance is being sorry enough for your sins to hate and forsake it. To hate and forsake it. In other words, they hear the proclamation of the coming of the Lord. They want their lives to be clean and pure for the Lord. This Son of God is to have the expectation that He, by His grace, will purge our life of sin. That He would want to refine us and transform us into His glorious image. So our whole lives are to be taken up with this work of repentance. Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, said, when our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, He meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. The whole of the Christian life. Do you understand what that means? It means that a repentance is not just an occasional event. It's not just something that we do every once in a while in a church service or when we're praying to God. It ought to consume our whole lives so that we recognize the seeds of all known sins and we want to be perfect so that we would be clean vessels for God. So our life would be a holy sacrifice to Him. And the only way that we can do that is by His grace. By coming to Him in repentance that He would transform us completely. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity spoke of the work of God's grace in us and our repentance this way. Imagine yourself a living house God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what He is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But presently, He starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is He up to? The explanation is that He is building a quite different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made as a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and to live in it himself. This is the work of God. And he requires us to constantly give ourselves to the work of repentance. That he might make us into a glorious palace. You see, we ought never to assume that any particular part of our lives is so holy that it's beyond the need for God's transforming grace. We ought never assume that any part of our lives is so holy that it's beyond the need for God's cleansing and purifying grace. And that's the very thing that the Scriptures call us to is a life of of repentance to be transformed. Oftentimes, I think we consider other people's opinions of us. They make judgments about us. They critique us. And we usually chalk those up as just their opinions. And they're not altogether accurate. But to come to Jesus 
And to submit to the reign of the Son over our lives is to say He has the right to make the assessment of every part of our lives. And I will bow to His assessment. And whatever He says of me, whatever He says of me, I will give myself to Him, repenting of my sins and trusting in His grace. After all, that's the point of repentance, isn't it? We're told here that this baptism of repentance is for of sins. In other words, they're not just coming into the wilderness to clean their act up, but they're rather coming that they might repent of their sins, receive grace from the Lord Jesus. And you see, that's why it's a proclamation of good news, isn't it? Because there's grace and mercy found in Jesus. John, after all, tells them, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Like the prophets of the Old Testament, he doesn't point to himself, but he points to the coming Lord. And he says, there's one greater than me that's coming. And not only is he greater, he'll do a greater work than I. Because I can baptize you with water, symbolically washing away your sins. But he can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit might apply to you all the benefits of Christ and His grace. All the cleansing work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there's this great proclamation that we are to come in repentance. But secondly, there's an inauguration here. An inauguration of ministry. It's been prepared by John and now Jesus appears on the scene to inaugurate His public ministry. We're told in verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here, what is going on, Mark juxtaposes the proclamation of good news, joyful tidings about the Son of God. And now, it's Jesus of Nazareth who's shown to be the Son. What does that mean? Well, those who were in that particular area would have known of Nazareth, of its reputation of being an immoral and corrupt place. So much so that Nathaniel could say when he heard of Jesus as being the Christ, the Messiah, he could ask the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see what Jesus is doing? He's allowing Himself to be labeled as one of us who comes from a darkened and corrupt place. He's so willing to be identified with our sins that not only is He willing to be called Jesus of Nazareth, but He's also willing to stand in the same river and be baptized. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's almost as if this sin-polluted water that Jesus is standing in is now being raised up and poured over Jesus so that at least symbolically all that filth and pollution would pour over Him and run down His whole body that He might be covered in all the guilt 
and all the shame that is ours. So here Jesus passively receives the sign of repentance and the sign of all, the God, all of God's judgment and wrath that's meant for sinners. You see what Christ is doing for you. He's so willing to identify with you that not only does He take your form, not only does He take upon Himself the of this fallen world and all the humiliation that comes with it coming from glory, but He's so willing to identify with you that He's willing to be washed in all of your sin and all of my sin. See, the mission He's inaugurating here is one of enduring all and judgment of God for the sins of His people. That He eventually on the cross would bear in His body all the brutality of God's wrath. So that what Isaiah prophesied centuries before, Jesus would now take up as His yoke. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes... We are healed. By going down into the river, Jesus is showing forth what He would say later in His Gospel ministry. Luke chapter 12, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This baptism with water was merely a sign pointing to the, the baptism that is to come. The baptism upon the cross of Christ where His blood would be shed. It was a baptism in blood. And don't you think that when Christ went down into that river, knowing what was going to happen, it took every bit of love for the Heavenly Father, every bit of love for His own people, to go against everything within Him that desired holiness and purity so that He could identify with us and be washed with our sins. Jesus took upon Himself all of our sins. He paid it all. His association with us and with our guilt is complete. So that as the hymn writer says, Jesus paid it all. To all to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. My Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you but the pleasure of God. But joy over His people because all the wrath and curse that was meant for us has been extinguished upon the cross of Christ. See, Jesus is able to cleanse every part of your soul. Even the parts that you aren't aware of yet that are filled with sin and stained with guilt. Well, not only is there an inauguration, but there's also an affirmation here. We're told in verses 10 and 11 that when Jesus came out of the water, immediately He saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So as Jesus is back, great proclamation to Him from the Heavenly Father that He is the Son and with Him the Father is well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. 
You recall from the account of Noah in the flood that after the flood, Noah sent out the dove into the world to see if the judgment of God had now been extinguished and the recreation of the world had been begun. And this picture of the Holy Spirit coming as a dove is a, is a picture of the new creation that God is going to accomplish in the world through Christ. And He hears this voice affirming Him. Heaven's open and the dove descending and the voice came from heaven. You are beloved Son. Jesus, the God-Man, who is the Jordan River to be symbolically washed with our sins, now is affirmed by the Heavenly Father so that He is reminded that the pleasure of the Father rests upon Him. So that He goes about His ministry knowing that the Father says to Him, with you, I am well pleased. You see what the Father is doing here. In one sense, for the sake of redemption, He's adopting His own Son. Now Jesus is always the eternal Son of God. It's not that He becomes the Son of God here. But for the sake of salvation, the Father adopts Christ as the suffering Son who will now be the Son that Israel never could be, who would be the church that we could never be. All throughout the Scriptures, the people of God are spoken of as the, the firstborn Son. And yet we have been more like the prodigal Son, haven't we? We looked at that a few weeks ago about the prodigal Son going off into the far country. And now what we have here is a picture of the Son the Son of God, going off into the far country that He might receive the punishment of God so that we eventually one day could hear the words, now with you, I am well pleased. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the Son that's given to us. You see, the point of Mark's Gospel here is that his readers would be affirmed with the love of the Father that He has sent the Son. And the Son has been the Son that we could never be. And now, by faith in Him, we could hear those words too. With you I am well pleased. Let me ask you this morning, is your hope in anything or in anyone else other than Jesus? whether in part or in whole. Because I can assure you of this, no one else can represent you before the Father. Because no one else can hear those words, you are My Son, and with you I am well pleased, unless they are in the Son by faith. Is Christ your complete trust before the Father? If not, come to Him this morning and make Him your trust that He would be everything for you. Well, finally, we have here this morning not only a proclamation, an inauguration, an affirmation, but now a temptation. Verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus having been 
anointed by the Spirit and going about in a Spirit-filled ministry, now submits to the Spirit for the sake of the salvation of His people. And He's allowed to be driven out into the wilderness, further into the wilderness, that He would be tempted by Satan and undergo all the temptations, all the trials, all the ravages of life in a cursed and fallen world. The first Adam had failed. And by his failure, the curse had come upon the Cast out of the garden into the wilderness. And now Jesus as the second Adam will go out into the wilderness for us. He will accept all the conditions that the first Adam left behind. He would face the wild animals and the beasts. He would face the curses of this particular life. He would be inflicted with all the pains of this particular life that grow up around and among us. And He would do a work that we could never do, which is overcome Satan himself. You know, we're Americans and we're used to winning. We like to win. But I'll just tell you this, this is a battle you cannot win. You cannot win this battle. You remember the story of Goliath, how he came out and challenged anyone from the armies of Israel to a fight. He was the great champion of the Philistines. And if anybody from Israel could come out and defeat him, then they would surrender themselves to the armies of Israel. And so he came out day after day mocking the people of God and mocking their God. And who goes out but a young boy in faith, the man of faith, to do what all the armies of Israel could not do, but in the power of God Himself slay the giant. My friends, that's not primarily a picture of how we need to go out and slay the giants of our lives. About how we need to go out into the wilderness and conquer our enemies. It's primarily a picture of the Savior going forward to defeat the enemy of the armies of God. Satan himself. While the rest of the army stands on the sideline helpless to do anything. You see what Christ has done for you? He's gone out into the wilderness of this world. And He's done what you and I could not do. And He's defeated all the enemies of God. He's what the writer of Hebrews calls our archegon, our champion, our trailblazer, our pioneer. The one who would go forward brandishing his sword and defeating all the armies of Satan. Defeating sin and death We could follow behind Him in a train of salvation. You know, I think it's this portion of the Gospel that may have been a great encouragement to Mark himself. You remember Mark's story? Remember how he was from Jerusalem and that he had started out with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but when they got to Cyprus, for some reason he abandoned them. I don't know if it was too hard if there were difficulties he was unwilling to face. But somehow he had to face the fact that he had failed 
and pressing on. And that in his failure actually caused dispute between Paul and Barnabas. That there was conflict between them as a result of what he had done. And now he could write of his own champion who could do the things that he could not do. Think of all of your failures. Consider all of your failures for a moment. All the things that you could never do. All the things that you had aspired to and never could pull off. All the things that you were expected to become and and never became. All the hopes and aspirations that you had. Consider how much you left on the table that you could not fulfill. My friends, Jesus is that for you. He is that for you. He has been everything that we could not be. He has done everything in obedience to the Father that we could never do. He has fulfilled a life of of glory that we were meant for. While we have fallen in sin and lacked the glory of God, Jesus has accomplished it for us. Going forth into a barren place, facing the wild beast, facing all the temptation of Satan, and yet coming out victorious. You see, Mark could speak of this proclamation as the beginning of good news. The beginning of joyful tidings. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, God. Because the reign of Jesus is not like the reign of any other earthly king. He doesn't stand up in an ivory tower and occasionally come out and people down there. No, He's become one of us. And He stooped down beneath us. And He's become the suffering King who would serve us doing all that we could never do. He came not to be served, but to serve and to offer His life as a ransom for many. The question for us this morning is, do you receive the Son as this kind of king? Do you receive the Son as this kind of king so that you renounce every bit of claim upon your life and you're willing to live a life of repentance so that you're willing to trust that He has been bathed in your sins for you and that He has accomplished everything that you could never accomplish and become your great champion. Your Archegon. My friends, that's the beginning of good news. And so it's to Jesus, the Son of God, that we come this morning. We come to His table in a few minutes. Come. Come to Christ in faith. And receive Him as the great King, the Son of the Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Son has been for us what we could never be. And now He is ours by faith. And what a joy that is for us as a congregation. Lord, we do pray that our spiritual zeal and fervor, 
our joy in the Lord would grow and mature as we study through the gospel according to Mark. And that we would receive all the joys and treasures of heaven as we learn more and more of the great suffering King, the suffering Son, who would come on our behalf so that we might receive Him and all the treasures of heaven. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.